Informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thanks so much for being with us and letting us be part of your day as we wrap up another week. Coming up today, we're going to talk markets with Arlen Suderman with INTL FC Stone. A trade update with Save Salt, Dave Salmonson with the American Farm Bureau Federation. We'll talk more about these concerns over the startup of USMCA. We'll talk about a report that says China is ready to start buying more ag products from us. And what about the possibility of a trade deal with the United Kingdom? We'll talk about all that. Charlie Arnott with the Center for Food Integrity will join us to take a look at how consumers view technology as we make our way through COVID-19 and how that may uh, impact things post-COVID-19. Kind of interesting how consumers look at things that are going on now. What will become a trend? What will just be, you know, uh, kind of a passing thing once COVID-19 is over? We'll talk about all that with Charlie Arnott. But first, we start with the Dicamba story. Recently, we talked with Darren Kopik, president and CEO of the Ag Retailers Association. He told us then he was seeking more clarity from EPA And yesterday I talked with Darren Kopik once again, and I asked him if he has received that clarity yet from EPA. We have not. Uh, EPA let their their earlier order stand. We'd had some uh, informal exchanges with him about a couple of things, but there has been no additional guidance provided. And so uh, our retailers have been continuing to operate under what what the original uh, order said. So now it looks like a back and forth between EPA and the court and basically EPA saying we're not violating your order or your decision because we believe that allowing the use of existing stocks of dicamber products is okay. The courts and those plaintiffs that took this to the courts in the first place are wanting this uh, complete stop of the use of uh, of dicamba. So, uh, are we just working through a legal loophole here, or how do you see this playing out? Well, you know, if, if the plaintiffs had their way in this case, we'd lose all of our pesticides available to us, and we'd have to go back to hose and fly swatters and a lot more tillage. Uh, but what EPA, I think EPA filed a really good reply brief in this case, and they said, look, uh, the, the process we put forward is authorized by FIFRA. We're the ones that administer FIFRA, not the court. And it's an orderly process to take care of existing stocks because if you just yank the registration off the market, then you get all this unregistered products sitting out there. What do you do with that? So uh, both in in terms of of legal requirements and common sense, EPA's approach is is very well justified in my view. What are you hearing from your members around the country in in trying to comply with uh, with the what EPA has directed and uh, also dealing with farmers' concerns over what they're hearing about dicamba? Well, uh, you know, some of the states have issued additional clarification at their levels, uh, which has helped in, in, uh, you know, questions that retailers have that operate in those states. But really what they're trying to do is comply with the order that EPA put out, uh, make sure that that, uh, they're doing everything right, but also if there's an opportunity to spray this product now when they have it, when the growers invested in it, before the, the growth stage cutoffs or the date cutoffs happen, let's get this product out there and used. 
Darren, where do you see this going? I mean, we've had increased education. We've had uh, tighter windows of usage. We've taken seemingly all the steps, but still we're having these issues. We have complaints. We have a court case. Where are we headed with this, do you think? That's a great question. You know, I I wish I had a crystal ball in this case so I could plan ahead, and I'll bet the the retailers and the registrants do too because they don't know what kind of plants to plan for. Um, You know, this product has had more drift complaints than other products have. You talk to just about any state regulator, and the complaints have spiked during these few years that we've been using over-the-top dicamba. So I'm sure EPA will take that into consideration when they make their 2021 registration decision. Um, And what we've asked EPA to do is whatever the decision is, yes or no, just let us know in plenty of time so that everybody in the system from the registrants to the retailer to the grower can make adjustments accordingly. You said you you think they've come... EPA has issued a good defense, a good position on this for now. Do you think overall EPA has handled this issue properly, correctly? I think so. There may be some judgment calls. I, I know we've got uh, you know a handful of members who really don't think that, that the product should have been out there in the first place, but the majority of them uh, think that if it's used according to the label, they can minimize most of these issues, and the product works really well on glyphosate-resistant weeds. So EPA has got to make all those trade-offs as part of the stripper analysis. And, uh, you know, if I'm trusting somebody to do the scientific analysis and make those calls right, I'd rather have EPA doing that than the judges on the Ninth Circuit Court. It just seems to me that by now we should have a, a decision on this. Either you can use it or you can't use it. And instead of being always caught in this this uncertainty and in this limbo and and if epa it seems to me if they have that science and research was obviously they felt they do they feel they do to approve it in the first place then why are we now in a situation where they've decertified three products well you're in a situation because the the plaintiffs brought a, a court case and the ninth circuit decided that they were smarter than epa was about whether this product should be registered or not uh, the EPA's registrations are conditional, and that allows them the chance to go back after a year or two of experience, look at the data, look at the experience, and say, what changes do we need to make next time around? Is it a situation where we just can't extend that registration any further? But that's a, a data-driven scientific process, not a legal one. It just seems, though, that their decision now is based on the legal decision rather than any change in, in science that they were using to approve it in the first place. Oh, right. Because the, the, the agency has to abide by the, the rulings of the court. And they, in my view, they've done so in this case. Uh, they didn't quite do it the way the plaintiffs wanted to because the plaintiffs wanted a scorched earth approach to removing the product from the market. But uh, I think EPA acted very responsibly um, in implementing the court's order, but doing it in a way that doesn't cause undue harm to those that really had no impact over whether the project was registered in the first place. So now it's it's a legal back and forth, which leaves uh, farmers with questions about, will they be able to use the product next year? Exactly. And that's an answer we don't know yet. The sooner we get that answer, the better for everybody. Darren Kopik, president and CEO of the Ag Retailers Association, 
House ag leaders have issued a statement saying we support EPA's authority to regulate how existing stocks of the vacated products can be sold, distributed, and used. EPA's recent filing with the court properly defends the agency's precedent-based position that farmers should be allowed to use what they legally purchased until July 31, 2020, as long as the farmers abide by all the prescribed conditions of use required by the most recent pesticide registration. All right, coming up next, we're going to talk with Charlie Arnott with the Center for Food Integrity. As consumers turn to technology to help deal with COVID-19, how will this impact their views on technology in the future for food production? We'll talk about it next on AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. We're joined now by Charlie Arnott, CEO for the Center for Food Integrity. Charlie, always good to talk with you. It is interesting how consumers are looking at technology as a way to deal with COVID-19, whether it's uh, technology for testing or coming up with a vaccine or, or how we communicate as well as social distance at the same time. So technology is a big part of what we're going through, but history has shown us that Consumers have been somewhat skeptical of the use of technology for food production. Do you think COVID-19 will change their attitudes towards technology use in food production? Yeah, it's a great question, Mike. And I think it's one of the things that we think where we believe there is an opportunity. Uh, as our research is indicating, consumers are willing to think about technology now as a solution for a variety of different challenges, which is exciting for those of us in agriculture because Ag has been so great about evaluating, adopting, and implementing technology that allows us to produce more food using fewer natural resources, to protect the environment, to take better care of our animals. And yet, as you noted, we've had pushback from the consuming public about the use of that technology and the application of that technology. Historically, we've tried to talk about the science and the safety, et cetera. But what we're now seeing is there's a new willingness to think about technology and the solutions that it brings. And that's really where we think there's a terrific opportunity is to really focus on the solutions. I think one of the challenges we've had in ag is that the solutions seem so incredibly obvious that we tend to fall back on the data and the science as opposed to simply reinforcing the solutions Uh, because that's really where we have the opportunity to help people understand, you know what, what you're looking for from agriculture is exactly what we're providing. Uh, Being able to have more sustainable farms, taking better care of animals, making sure you have safe, healthy, affordable food, that's what technology enables. And I think it's that conversation that we have the opportunity to enhance and expand with this new consumer interest in technology. Yeah, I I find it interesting. It's, I think one thing agriculture has learned is that you can have all the science on your side in the world, but that doesn't always win uh, the debate in the court of public opinion. Yeah, that's right. And it's unfortunate because as we think about how we, how we influence this conversation, there are many elements. Science is one of them, but being scientifically accurate and scientifically valid, as, as you noted, Mike, isn't sufficient. It's crucial. You have to have that, right? If you don't have a scientific foundation, you have nothing upon which to stand. But what we know is that we have to be able to engage and talk about what is specific relevant and the benefits that that consumers realize or the benefits they're looking for 
from agriculture. So it's not about the technology. It's about the benefits that the technology delivers. So when we talk about enhancing efficiency and productivity, that's something that, that's important to those of us in agriculture, but it's not necessarily going to resonate with society. So when we talk about improving productivity, you know, generally that, help, that also reduces our environmental impact. And so we can change the focus. We can change the benefit that we're talking about. So it's not just about increasing efficiency and productivity. This actually allows us to reduce our environmental impact, uh, to use less water, to use fewer inputs, and to produce more food on the same amount of land. Now, all of a sudden, we're talking about things that are important to consumers and important to society, and it gives us the opportunity to talk about the technology in a way that's relevant to that conversation. We're talking with Charlie Arnott with the Center for Food Integrity. So, Charlie, do you think this is going to be a boost for the use of technology overall in in food production or just certain segments? Is it going to mean that the uh, consumers are going to look more to a specific type of production uh, rather than seeing how technology can apply across the board? Yeah, it's a great it's a great question, Mike, and I think the jury is still out on that one. But I think we are at that point where we're seeing kind of the next generation of technology come into play. Whether that is uh, more analytics, where we're able to understand what's happening on every inch of every farm and to use that data to improve productivity and reduce our impact. Uh, whether it's gene editing, whether it is different kinds of of agricultural systems. The, the flood of technology that's coming to the market today and the data analytics that go with that, I think are going to be very, very relevant to consumers because they are really part of every segment of our life today, uh, whether it's healthcare or the way we use energy or the way we communicate or the entertainment we consume. There's all of that analysis taking place. So I think there's going to be some of this is going to be much more relevant, much more relatable to the broader public. And I think that's really beneficial for us. And I think what we're seeing as a result of the technology being used to battle the coronavirus is an illustration of that. Um, we're able to make it more relatable and more relevant to consumers. And as they see that technology apply to different aspects of their lives, they'll be more willing to accept similar technologies now being applied in agriculture. I've always I've kind of noted the ironies. Let's use uh, antibiotics, for example. We're, we yep. live in a society that depends heavily on antibiotics, and people want them and expect them to be readily available and, and to take care of a variety of things. But yet there's uh, concern or res- a resistance to using antibiotics in, uh, in animal production for food. Oh, the irony is, is, is rich, and it's one of those things that constantly frustrates those in agriculture because it's always easier to ask someone else to change their behavior than it is for me to change mine, right? So it's easier for me to say, well, I want to take antibiotics, and I may not finish them, or I may not take the full course, or I may go and get my child a doctor's appointment and get antibiotics prescribed even if they aren't going to be helpful, but I sure don't want you to use them in animal agriculture. I sure don't want you to use them in ethanol production. And so, you know, there is a lot of that irony that exists. But I think it goes back to the opportunity that presents. I mean, clearly it's frustrating, and we, we can harness that frustration and figure out what's strategic. The strategic opportunity is really to engage in that conversation to say, hey, like you, we want to make sure that animal health products and other products are used responsibly so that the benefits are available to all of us. That's why we're doing this, this, and this, 
to make sure that those products continue to be available for you and effective for you and your family, as well as available and effective for those of us in agriculture. So the irony is rich, but it's a conversation we have to continue to have to help people understand the critical role the technology plays in allowing us to produce the food we need, to have that nutrient-dense food that allows people to enjoy what we produce in a way that keeps them healthy and safe. I think gene editing, gene editing is really going to be a, a test case here. How do we uh, approach this and and do it differently than we did with GMOs? Uh, that yeah, you know, it, it, became, that that became a negative connotation, a negative perception, and we're still battling that. Can we change the narrative moving forward with something like gene editing? I think we can, Mike. I think there's a real opportunity with gene editing. We were very fortunate. We had consumer research done by over a dozen different entities, both public and private, that was shared with us. We were able to synthesize that to better understand how do we introduce gene editing in a way that's going to encourage acceptance. And the first piece of that is to introduce it in a way that focuses on those benefits that really are appreciated by broader society, not just by agriculture. So does it, does it allow us to improve our environmental performance? Does it reduce suffering of, of, of animals? And if there is the opportunity, then to tie it back to the applications in human medicine. So uh, there's gene editing therapies for cancer, gene editing therapies for sickle cell. All of those things make it much more relatable to people who don't have an understanding of what's happening in agriculture. I think one of the other benefits that we see from gene editing is it's a technology that's being used by a lot of companies and universities and others across the entire uh, development community. So it's not just a handful of large multinational organizations. It's a technology that's much more widely available and being used by a much broader range of developers, which also makes it easier for people to understand, okay, there are a lot of companies involved. That makes me feel more comfortable. I see how it's being used in human medicine. That makes me more comfortable. And it's actually helping achieve some things that are important to me, like reduced impact on the environment. So it all goes back to understanding that the technology may be values neutral, but the application of that technology isn't. And so we have to focus on what are the benefits that actually are relevant to society and continuing to communicate those over and over and over again. Yeah, hopefully we can learn from mistakes made in the past about educating people about these benefits and the values that uh, they everyone can receive from these technologies and do a better job of it this time around. All right, Charlie, always good to talk with you. Thank you for being with us. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Mike. Take care. All right, that is Charlie Arnott, CEO for the Center for Food Integrity. will be very interesting to see what carries over from things we are using and applying and looking to to help us through COVID-19, which of those things uh, will be applied moving forward in areas such as food production. All right, stay with us. More to come. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. information america's farmers and ranchers need to know adams on agriculture now back to mike adams 
And we're joined now by Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist for INTL FC Stone. Arlen, always good to talk with you. Uh, it seems like we well, oftentimes we're talking about China. Well, what do you make of these reports that uh, U.S. and Chinese officials have had a meeting, uh, what, in Hawaii? And uh, out of that, we find that China is ready to start buying a lot more ag products. Uh, you put much credence to that? Well, I believe that China made that commitment. Uh, I'm not sure they're going to be able to. There are several challenges to being able to do so. Uh, the low value of the commodities makes it hard to hit a dollar value, dollar target right now. The coronavirus certainly sent them back. I have long expected that we would see a significant increase in Chinese buying in the last half of this year, and that is playing out. Uh, the shipments, I think, will start increasing maybe late in July. Um, and increase significantly as we go into the last quarter of the year. Um, but will it hit the $36.5 billion? That's going to be a challenge. China does have some incentive to at least give that sense that they're going to do so. They find themselves in a very unusual position in the world uh, public opinion right now. They've, they've enjoyed many, many years of being the one everyone wanted to do business with, and suddenly they're getting an increasing amount of resistance from nations around the world. And uh, coronavirus is just the latest part of that. And then you add in some other other factors that have been going on, and then Hong Kong, et cetera, and they're getting a lot of criticism. And so trade is one area where they can have a positive impact, and uh, I think they'd like to try to do it if they can, but we'll see. Yeah, the the model, the track record has kind of been, you know, the best way to suppress that criticism that coming their way is to go in and, and buy something from that country that's criticizing him. They have built their power largely on making people dependent on them. And if you're not doing, if China's not doing business with a country, then that country's not dependent on them. And uh, they had us where they wanted us, so to speak, when we were dependent on them. Um, and they were slowly moving away from that because being the, being the uh, how do I say it, the rival country in the world, they had clearly said they wanted to overtake us, so they became resistant to wanting to send their money to us for a long time, and so they were shifting commodities, commodity purchases away from the United States, and soybeans were about all they were buying prior to the trade war. Uh, but now they're finding themselves in a situation where they need to kind of um, soften the blow of all the criticism and do some business with us to try to soften that criticism because they know we can also hurt them. Uh, particularly, we can hurt them with capital controls, and that's something that the White House has not been shy about um, stating and taking some actions on. And China does not want those capital controls to go against them, restricting the flow of money between our two countries. And so, that's why I think that they want to do all they can to try to survive the Trump year, so to speak. And if that means buying commodities, well, at least they're doing so at a time when there are multi-year lows and they can help build their reserves uh, for surviving any other crises they may have with coronavirus. It feels, and this has been brought to light again in the last few days with revelations from uh, uh, you know the book that's out uh, or or the legal battle about whether it's going to come out, but a lot of people seem to know what's in it. Uh, it just feels like agriculture becomes a pawn in a very high-stakes game of politics. 
Oh, that's true. And uh, there was a day when every family in America was either on a farm or had direct ties to a farm. Still, grandpa was on a farm or even the parents were on a farm. Um, and uh, so agriculture really took a high priority. That's no longer the case. Unfortunately, we live in a world uh, where, you know, recently I heard a story, what's all the concern about uh, farmers needing to be able to sell livestock? Why do we need farmers producing livestock? We've got stores where we can buy meat from. That's the perception of the consumer anymore. So that makes it easy for agriculture to to get whipped around and uh, get caught up in these things because we lack the support. Um, now, farmers helped put President Trump into office in uh, the last election, and so he's made a priority to try to keep that vote from them. So that keeps them in a positive position right now, um, trying to get support from the White House. Um, but uh, uh, it, it's a tenuous support. That's a great segue to my next question. We're talking with Arlen Suderman with INTLFC Stone. Here's another hot political issue concerning agriculture, and that is the small refinery exemptions. Uh, EPA now looking at, what, 52 so-called GAP uh, requests, you know, retroactive uh, requests here that they, if they grant them or a significant number of them, that could cost the president uh, votes in farm country. Well, we saw the last time when the president took the stand in supporting of the refineries how quickly the farm vote turned on him. Um, Now, ironically, it came back, um, not necessarily with his uh, compromise plan, but it came back when the impeachment trial started because farmers realized that not having him in office and looking at the alternative of who probably would be in office might be worse than having him. We don't have anything neatly on the horizon that could bring that support back. That's not the type of support you want to see come back. And so the president's going to be in a tough spot here trying to hang on to his energy support from the oil-producing states uh, while maintaining farm support price. Um, Not an easy place to be right now, and uh, his negotiating skills are going to have to be sharp. Well, he's tried to walk this middle ground since he's been in office on this issue and has received a lot of criticism from both sides. Now, sometimes that tells you uh, you're making the right decision if both sides are somewhat unhappy. But in this case, it's, uh, it, it really doesn't seem like it's worked out that well for them. And if they grant a lot of these exemptions, I mean, isn't that like kicking an industry when it's down? It, it really is. The problem here is everybody's down. The energy industry's down. Ethanol's down. Farm uh, economy is down. Everybody's down. And uh, he's trying to get the economy back up and going. And when you start picking winners and losers rather than let the economy do it, you start running into some real problems. And ultimately, what we'd like to see is the markets opened up for ethanol so that the consumer can make the choice, could, the consumer could understand the benefits of ethanol and make that decision, not have the restrictions or problems there, and we could stand on our own without the government support. But unfortunately, that's not a reality of the world that we live in right now. Let's move out of the political arena into the uh, traditional concerns we have at this time of year, and that's the weather on the, and the crop conditions. How concerned are you, how concerned are the markets, if at all, about the dry weather? 
Well, I was just looking at some of the data um, before coming on the air and looking at the Corn Belt as a whole. Uh, had we not received the moisture from Cristobal, uh, we would really be in a hurt. You know, Cristobal uh, moisture went through a very narrow uh, segment from Louisiana right up to Minnesota, up the west side of the Mississippi. So it, it affected a small part. But even with that moisture, as I looked at, okay, over the last 40 years, which years were drier during the month of June than this year? 1987. Then another year that sounds familiar, 1988. Uh, 1995, 2012, those were the only years out of the last 40 years that I could see that were drier for the month of June to date than this year. Then I looked at temperature, average temperature, and of course the heat has been most impressive in, in here in the plains, um, very intense while it's been much more moderate in the east, but yet the Corn Belt as a whole uh, this looks to be the second or third hottest of the last 40 years for June to date for average temperatures. So it's put a lot of stress on the crops. That makes this weather system this weekend very critical. These rains have to verify there's a big difference between the weather models and what's going to happen. Most are in agreement. We're going to see some good moisture here in the western Midwest. What about further east? The models are not in agreement on that. If we don't verify moisture, uh, going into this, then we start drying out the atmosphere and it makes it easier for high pressure ridge to get established and drought starts to get drought as we go into the critical month of July for pollination of the corn crop. So it's very critical that these rains verify over the coming week across the Midwest. Yeah, this weather has producers, has farmers' attention, but what about traders? What about the markets? It really doesn't to this point because the crop ratings are still good. We did see a significant drop in the corn ratings last week, but that still left the ratings above average for this time of year and the models calling for an above trend yield. And so the trade's really not too concerned, particularly when the USDA is forecasting a 3.3 billion bushel carryout. If the USDA was forecasting a 1.3 billion bushel carryout and then we got the stress, It'd be a different story, especially with the massive short positions the funds have in the corn market. But right now, they're not too worried. If this rain doesn't verify and the crop rate continues to drop and we see China come in on the demand side and start buying significant corn, ethanol, and distiller's grain, then we've got a different story. That's a big if at this point. I'd hate to bet the farm on it. It is possible and something we'll certainly be watching. All right. Well, we indeed will be watching for sure. Arlen, always good to talk with you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mike. Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist for INTL FC Stone. So what do we make of uh, this talk of China going to start buying even more ag products after this meeting with U.S. officials? What about the concerns over USMCA before it ever even takes effect. We'll talk about all that with Dave Salmonson of the American Farm Bureau Federation next on AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Let's talk some trade issues with Dave Salmonson, Senior Director, Congressional Relations for the American Farm Bureau Federation. Dave, 
Here we are about to get to the uh, July startup of USMCA, but it doesn't seem like it's going to be a, a smooth startup. We're, we talked yesterday with the uh, National Milk Producers Federation. They have concerns or some things Canada's doing on dairy policy uh, that they say could undermine what they thought were going to be improvements uh, for U.S. dairy in, in USMCA. We've heard some others. Uh, sectors critical of some things so is is this to be expected is this a concern headed into the start of usmca how do you look at all this well i look at it that trade agreements go as far as they go but they never cover everything so i think as uh, you said we'll have to watch closely how canada implements the agreements they made in dairy Uh, we're looking for some uh, good growth there but it depends on them carrying through on getting rid of their classic seven structure they put in a few years ago. So you have to, you just have to be mindful of that and watch that closely. And as they say, sometimes keep the pressure on to make sure uh, people live up to their commitments on that. With Mexico, we've got some concerns uh, that have uh, gone back a ways on biotech approvals and pesticide registration. And, of course, uh, Ambassador Lighthizer, in his testimony this week before the Senate Finance and House Ways and Means Committee, uh, brought up those issues with Mexico, said that they uh, were looking at that very closely, wanted to make sure that Mexico lived up to their commitments on improving our biotech products and carrying through with uh, updating pesticide registration approvals. So that's something that uh, the U.S. government has to work with the Mexican government to make sure they carry that out. There's also a lot of issues about how Mexico will deal with the new labor provisions in USMCA. So I think with uh, trade agreements, there's an awful lot of work to get them accomplished, as we know, to get them passed and ratified. But the work doesn't stop there. Uh, real emphasis, I think, with a lot of uh, tough experience over the years on the need for continual enforcement, continual attention to these trade agreements. I think that's everybody's very mindful of that right now. Yeah, we're reminded that trade is always a work in progress, even if you have a deal in place. What did you think of Ambassador Lighthizer's comments uh, before Congress on these trade issues? Well, I thought he was very straightforward on the trade agenda. Um, Certainly covered a lot of ground, spent a lot of time, of course, on the China Phase 1 agreement. Everybody's interested in making sure that that lives up uh, to its promise, and he was very uh, upbeat on that, thought the Chinese would live up to their Phase 1 commitments and purchases. So uh, we all hope so. But, again, we're all watching that very closely. He talked uh, a lot about um, trade negotiations with both the United Kingdom, with the European Union, and in back and forth with members uh, in both committees, talked a lot about uh, food safety standards, the sanitary, phytosanitary uh, issues that have long been put in the way of us having open trade with European countries for our meat products and poultry, um, and the need to make sure we, you know, that we uh, overcome that and get, if we're going to have any trade agreements, any further ones, uh, that we really have good SPS standards that are science-based. So I think he really, uh, really emphasized that. And he also talked about some of the uh, changes the administration wants to make in the World Trade Organization. Haven't been happy with the way the appellate body was uh, was operating. And, of course, that's been shut down now these past uh, six, seven months. And some other changes to make that organization work better. Um, you know, a lot of t- 
different countries in the WTO, of course, a lot of different ideas about what uh, the world economy should be like. So, again, that's going to need continued attention. But he, uh, he was, uh, I think, very straightforward with what the U.S. economy needs on trade and how we need to work with other countries. Stories now about a meeting and a why between U.S. and Chinese officials and supposedly China now saying they're going to really step up those purchases uh, of ag products. Um, is this kind of a, I mean, everyone kind of gets excited about this, but it's kind of, we'll believe it when we see it, right? I mean, they, they've been buying, but uh, not at the pace that many had hoped. Although, to be fair, it really wasn't expected to be a rapid pace, was it, until the latter part of the year? Yes. Yeah, we were, you know, everybody was looking to have maybe a little better than what they were. Everybody understands the, uh, the pandemic and the impacts that had in China, but they really need to pick up to reach that $36.5 billion that they, you know, they committed to back when they signed in January. Of course, we all know that an awful lot of the buying happens into the uh, final quarter of the year when they're buying soybeans, when they're buying our harvest, corn, a lot of products uh, in the fall. So, and that's that's normal trade with China. The biggest amount of buying was always in the, the latter half of the year. But this is the time of year, as we're starting to see, they're making deals. They're, uh, you know, placing orders, signing contracts for fall delivery. Um, and that's what we want to see. So the fact that uh, we're hearing that they're stepping it up, placing new orders, is the direction this, uh, this should be going. And uh, it's good to see that that's starting to happen. What do you think about getting a deal done with the United Kingdom? Um, we talked with NCBA this week. They seem somewhat optimistic while acknowledging uh, some, some big uh, hurdles still to overcome, though. Yeah, well, it's an agreement that I think both sides really want to do. As Ambassador Lighthizer was asked, you know, why he thought we could do one with the U.K. quicker than the European Union, he said, well, the U.K. wants it. And I think that's very true. Um, you know, they're engaged in a tough negotiation with the European Union as they're leaving that on a future trade relationship. They'd like to be able to make sure they had a good, uh, which they already have a very good trade relationship with the U.S., but a formal trade agreement. I think they uh, really want that with us. We do so much trade with them on, on all sorts of commodities, services, everything you can speak of. But the challenge for them is to move away from the regulatory uh, world they've been in with the European Union when it comes to importing agricultural food products. And that's what we need to change to have a good deal with them. Yeah, that'll require a big shift for sure. All right, Dave, good to talk with you. Thank you very much. Yep, anytime. Take care. Dave Salmonson with the American Farm Bureau Federation. That wraps up for today, for the week. Have a safe weekend. Hope you'll join us again on Monday right here on AOA.